can stand with me. Proverbs chapter 20. Proverbs 20. Look at verse 1. Proverbs 20, verse 1. Wine is a mocker. Strong drink is raging. And whosoever deceived thereby is not wise. Father, speak to our hearts and Lord, help us, God, as we make our way through your word today. Challenge us, Lord, to make sure we apply your word in the right way and interpret in the right way and draw us near to you in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. The Christian and alcohol. How many know that's been a hot topic now over 2,000 years? Is it okay for the Christian to drink? Well, the Bible has a lot to say about that, about wine. The Bible tells us that wine appears to be attractive. It's red, it's sparkling, it's smooth. It's certainly smooth to the senses of our sights and tastes. But eventually... The Bible says it's as devastating and as painful as a snake bite. Both the Old Testament and the New Testament warn of the dangers of alcohol, especially drunkenness. And so in our text this morning, and we've read other texts as well from Proverbs over the last several weeks, the warning of becoming drunk with wine is very, very, very clear. If you were here a couple of weeks ago, we, we found out that there were several words in the Old Testament for wine. Uh, the most common one used was yayin. And uh, according to the Jewish Encyclopedia, it refers to mixed wine. There's only one primary Greek word for wine, and that's oinos. But what's interesting is, whether you had wine or something stronger than wine that was unmixed, the Bible says that all of these had the potential to be intoxicating. I'm convinced because that wine was so common in both the Old and New Testament times, the Bible gives a lot of warnings about drunkenness. Now, by the way, uh, anybody remember the time in your life where you didn't have running water in your home? Yeah. I remember the first house my parents rented, where I actually lived there for my great-grandmother owned the house. And uh, we had running water. It was a pump at the kitchen sink. <laughs> and as long as you kept at least, at least a little bit of water there to prime it with, you could have some running water. I remember, I don't remember so much in our home, uh, but I remember going to homes who had a common water bucket with a dipper. Anybody remember those? And guess who drank from it? Everybody did. Grandpa when he chawed. Grandma when she chawed, you know. 
<laughs> Everybody did. And uh, most people had, well, you had a cistern or a well that you pumped the water out of. I remember our, one of my grandmother's neighbors had the well with no pump for it. The pump was a bucket. And you had to learn to drop that bucket just the right way. Otherwise, you hit that water and float. You had to just hit it just right to get full of water. And every once in a while, if you weren't careful, you had to have that water tested. If you didn't, you could become sick from it. I'm glad for running water. You can have the good old days. I got up this morning and I wanted ice water. And I went to my refrigerator, pushed a button, put my glass in and my refrigerator, filled my water cup up. Nice, clean, sparkling water. But how many know that's not true all and everywhere in our world? You travel into foreign countries, you don't want to drink the water. I had a friend of mine I used to help in his business, and he used to travel for Senko. Michelle knows what I'm talking about. And he said one time they were in Malaysia, and he said, we left the city. He says, no in-between. You're either in the city or you're in out into nowhere. And there was a little restaurant. I was meeting with a group of people, and they wanted to know, do we want some Pepsi? And he, of course, we all said yes. And then they asked, do you want ice in your glass? And he said, I was the only one who said yes. He said, it kind of puzzled me. But when I got my glass, I saw the ice, but there were bugs in the ice. He said, I realized why they chose not to have ice with their Pepsi. And I want to remind you that one of the reasons that wine was so common in the Old Testament, excuse me, as well as the New Testament, the water wasn't always good to drink. There was a need for something else. So wine was common in the Old Testament as well as the New. And I realize that what we've read even a few weeks ago on this morning, the Bible is very, very clear when it comes to drunkenness. And it's clear uh, on the stand the Bible takes for people in leadership that they ought to stay away from alcohol because they have a responsibility before God and they have a responsibility to make sure that they give and they render right judgment. So God says, don't do that. You're to teach the truth exactly, if you will, and accurately. And you're also to make sure you set a pure example. It's also interesting, we're talking about the issue of wine. This applies in a lot of areas. The Bible says that you and I as Christians, we are to walk worthy. Jason's out in the back with the young people for children at church. That's the slogan of trail life. We are to walk worthy in our lives. Now, we need to remember as Christians, God has chosen you and I. He sanctified us. He set us apart to be his representative, to represent Christ in this fallen world. And in light of that truth, we ought to live our lives worthy of the calling we have received. And folks, I want you to realize this morning, it's a privilege of being Christ's very own. I'm his child today, and so are you if you're born again. And we must always remember, no matter where we go, people are watching our lives. 
And my question is, can they see Christ in me? How well are you doing? How well am I doing as a representation, representing my Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ? So Paul says to us, if we're going to walk in a worthy state, one of the things that means we don't allow ourselves to walk in any kind of an impaired state. I do not want to bring disgrace upon my God and my Savior. Well, what about occasional drinking, social drinking? I think we would all agree that the Bible says drunkenness is a sin. Hardly any debate about that. But some would ask, what in the world is wrong with just an occasional drink as long as I watch myself and I don't become drunk? I'm glad you asked. According to the National Institute on Alcohol Abuse, as soon as someone takes a sip of alcohol, it starts to enter their bloodstream. The effects can be apparent in as little as 10 minutes. On average, now depending on how big you are and a lot of things, you know, your body weight and so forth, but on average, three beers start to have an adverse effect on how you act and behave. What's also interesting, the more scientists learn about alcohol and the effects of it, the less enthusiastic they are even about occasional drinking. In 2018, in August, there was a study performed at the University of Washington School of Medicine, and they concluded this. There is no safe level of alcohol consumption. No safe level. They also said this. The health risk that come along with alcohol are massive. And they pointed to the fact that in 2016, more than 3 million deaths worldwide were because of alcohol use. So again, all that being said, if I avoid being drunk... If I just drink in moderation, have we done the will of God? Well, first of all, have you ever heard the phrase comparing apples with apples? My dad and I were in business together for several, quite a few years, and we would give estimates out. And we'd always tell the customer, we always liked it when they had an architect or somebody drew up a plan, and everybody bidding it got the same plan. Because you had to make sure you're bidding apples with apples. One of the last jobs I gave an estimate on that I didn't get was a large basement remodel. And uh, my price was $5,000 higher. And when the other guy got the job done, the guy who hired him called me. And he wanted me to fix his, his mess. I said, you get what you pay for. He didn't use the same material. It was shoddy material. A lot of things went on there because he didn't compare apples with apples. But it's interesting that those who want to condone, those who want to say, 
it's okay to consume alcohol as long as I don't get drunk. And most of those will say, you know what? People in Bible times, they, uh, they drank alcohol. I mean, didn't they drink wine in the Old Testament? What's the answer? Yes. They drank wine in the New Testament? Yes. Well, the disciples drank wine. Jesus drank wine. So therefore, I can drink wine. Hmm. But let's compare apples with apples. Luke chapter 7. Look at verse 33 and 34. For John the Baptist came, neither eating bread nor drinking wine. Now, by the way, the Greek word is oinos. And you say, he hath a devil. The Son of Man came eating and drinking. And you say, behold, a gluttonous man and a wine bibber. Now, that's oinos with another adjective added to it, okay? A friend of publicans and sinners. So we're talking about wine. Ferment and run for a minute. Now again, there's only one major word, and I think everywhere but once, the Greek word oinos is used for wine. <coughs> and I think I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago. But oinos in the New Testament Greek can refer to two distinctly different types of juice from the grape. There are times it means unfermented juice. And there are times it means fermented or intoxicating wine. Interesting, uh, Greek wasn't unique to New Testament writers. It was uh, common Greek. It was used by second uh, uh, Greeks as well uh, and religious authors. And they used that word oinos even before Christianity and then our church began to refer to fresh grape juice. They called it oinos. One Greek poet, Anarchon, 500 years before Christ, wrote this. Squeeze the grape and let out the oinos, the wine. Squeeze the grape and let out the wine. Greek poet, physicist, Nicander, 2nd century B.C., he writes of squeezing the grapes and refers to the produced juice as oinos. That fresh juice was called wine. Papias around A.D. 60 to 130. He was an early church father. And he mentioned that when grapes are crushed, they yield jars of oinos, jars of wine. A Greek papyrus letter dated A.D. 137 speaks of fresh oinos from the treading vat. Athenius, a Greek rhetorician and grammarian, around 200 A.D., he speaks of a sweet oinos, a sweet wine, that does not make the head heavy. Fermented 
or unfermented. In another place, Athenius writes of a man gathering grapes who went about and took oinos, wine, from the field. Again, unfermented grape juice. When the Jewish scholars translated the Old Testament into Greek, about 200 B.C., they used oinos in translating several different Hebrew words for wine. And so the writers of the New Testament knew that the Greek word for wine, oinos, could either be fermented or it could be unfermented juice from the grape. So we see it in secular Greek in the Old Testament. And we also find it when we examine New Testament verses. And we find out that oinos, wine, (coughs) could either be fermented or unfermented. Ephesians 5.18, Jason had this verse in our bulletin this morning, if you saw that. Paul writes, be not drunk with wine. Wherever it is excess, but be you filled, I'm sorry, but be filled with the Spirit. The Greek word is oinos. And there's no doubt about it, Paul is talking about fermented, intoxicating wine. Don't be drunk with that. Alcoholic wine. Revelation 19:15. And out of his mouth goes a sharp sword. That with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, and treads the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. The oinos press. And so while Paul spoke about alcoholic wine in Ephesians 5.18, here in Revelation 9.15, Jesus is described as treading out the winepress. In fact, the Greek literally reads, he treads the winepress with oinos, with wine. I don't think I'm wrong here, but the juice that comes from the winepress is not fermented. It would simply be grape juice. Revelation 6, verse 6. I heard a voice in the midst of the four beasts say, A measure of wheat for a penny. Three measures of barley for a penny. But notice this. See thou hurt not the oil and the wine, the oinos. So the oinos, there in Revelation 6, 6, refers to the grapes on the vine. And God says, the angels don't destroy that. So we see that wine was used in different ways in the New Testament. So for The believers in the early church, they understood that wine, oinos, was a general word, and it could be used for two distinctly different grape beverages. It could mean fermented or unfermented wine. It's interesting, ancient Roman writers have also explained in detail various processes used in dealing with freshly squeezed grape juice, especially how to keep them from fermenting. 
This guy's name was Columelia, if I pronounce that correctly. He was a writer and specialized on agriculture. <coughs> and here's what he said. He knew that grape juice would ferment if you didn't keep it cool. Under 50 degrees. And keep it oxygen-free. So here's what he wrote. That your grape juice may be always sweet as when it was new, thus proceed. After you apply the press to the grapes, take the newest, now the word is must, M-U-S-D, and that means a paste from squeezing the grapes, or the, or the goose, fresh juice. Put it in a container that was called amphora. Bring it up, cover it very carefully with pitch, lest any water should enter it. Sink it in a cistern or pond of cold water. Allow no part of the amphora, the container, to remain above the surface. After 40 days, take it out, and it will stay sweet for one year. So what are they looking for? Ways to keep grape juice from fermenting. Another Roman writer, Pliny, 1st century A.D., he says this, As soon as the must, the grape juice, is taken from the vat and put into cask, they plunge the cask in water till midwinter passes and regular cold weather sits in, again, to keep it from fermenting. Another method to keep them from, grapes from fermenting was to boil them into a syrup. And ancient historians actually refer to the product as oinos. It's a thick, paste-like syrup. And then they would later add water to it. One contributor to the Smith Bible Dictionary, his name is Canon Ferrari, he's a preacher of years ago, many years ago. He says this, The wines of antiquity were more like syrups. Many of them were not intoxicants. Many of them were not. The New Bible Dictionary tells us there were means of keeping wine sweet all year round. Fermented or unfermented. We celebrated the Lord's Supper just a few minutes ago. And some would say Jesus drank fermented wine at the Lord's Supper. Did he? We read from Matthew's account earlier. I want to read from Luke's account today, this part of it. Luke 22, <coughs> verse 18. For I say unto you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God <coughs> shall come. I will not drink of the fruit of the vine, until the kingdom of God shall come. That doesn't matter whether you read Matthew's account, Mark's account, or Luke's account. And by the way, the other account we have of that in detail is Paul wrote to the church of Corinth. In none of those cases do you find the word wine. You don't see the word oinos. Do words matter? Amen. Is the Bible inspired? Amen. You won't find the word oinos. In fact, all three gospel writers 
Call it the fruit of the vine. What is the fruit of the vine? It's grape juice. It is grape juice. And they call it oinos, the fruit of the vine. Do a worship. I did. Check it out. Uh-oh, if Bev listens, she's going to do that worship today. She'll catch me again. <laughs> I love her. I love her. Doesn't say oinos. Unfermented wine is the only true natural fruit of the vine. It contains about 20% sugar and no alcohol. And when wine is fermented, it destroys much of the sugar, alters what the vine has produced, and changes it. Fermented wine was not the product of the vine. Exodus 12, verse 15. Now remember, did Jesus drink fermented wine at the Last Supper? Seven days shall thou eat unleavened bread. Even the first day you shall put away leaven out of your houses. For whosoever eateth unleavened bread from the first day until the seventh day, that soul shall be cut off from Israel. How many know that for the Jews, Passover was a sacred celebration? And there were certain steps they did. They called the Seder meal. There were four cups involved. But was it wine or was it grape juice? Now remember, when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, they had gathered together to do what? Eat the Passover. Amen? Amen? Now stay with me. And we just read a portion, but the Passover law in Exodus 12 prohibited during Passover week the presence or the use of suar, which was yeast. A word referring to leaven or any agent of fermentation. Now hold me. Now listen to me very carefully. Now this leaven, this suar in the ancient world, it was often obtained from the thick scum on top of unfermenting wine. They would take it and save it to make yeast out of. Verse 19, Exodus 12. Seven days there should be, notice this, what? No. Leaven. How many understand the word no? You know. There shall be no leaven found in your houses. For whosoever eateth that which is leaven, even that soul shall be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he be a stranger or born in the land. The Hebrew word is hamatz. H-A-M-E-T-Z. And it refers to anything, anything at all, containing any fermentation. And God said for seven days, I don't want any hamats in your homes. None. Zilch. Am I coming across clear? 
If you do, if you do, you'll be cut off from the nation of Israel. Amen. Clear as can be. So why? Why did God give that law? God gave that law, those laws, because fermentation symbolizes corruption and it symbolizes sin. Matthew 16, verse 6. <clears throat> then Jesus said unto them, Take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of the Sadducees. Now, I'm still convinced that the disciples were free will Baptist. They were thick-headed. They said, oh, man, we forgot to bring bread. He knows it. And now he's talking about leaven. Uh-uh. He's talking about the corruption of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Leaven represents sin, and it represents corruption. And God said, I don't want any in your house during Passover week. Matthew five seventeen. Think not that I have come to destroy the law of the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. To fulfill. Jesus Christ, the Holy Son of God, the only begotten of God, He came into our world, and He fulfilled the law in every point, every jot, and every tittle, every requirement. And I want to submit to you this morning, when Jesus began to celebrate what was supposed to be the Passover meal, he would have followed God's law for the Passover meal. He came not to do away with it, to fulfill it. And he would not have used fermented wine. Exodus thirteen seven. Unleavened bread shall be eaten seven days. And there shall be no leavened bread be seen with thee. Notice this, next part. Neither shall there be leaven seen with thee in all of your quarters. Not going to tell you. I don't know how much clearer that could be. No leaven at all in your homes during Passover. Now, I must admit, to be honest, there has been a lively debate through the years, over centuries, among the Jewish rabbis and scholars of New Testament as well, whether or not fermented products of the wine were allowed at Passover. Now, by the way, those who hold to a literal interpretation, a strict literal interpretation, of the Hebrew Scriptures, especially Exodus 13.7, insist there was never any fermented wine in a Passover celebration if you're obeying God's laws. And some Jewish sources affirm that the use of unfermented wine at Passover was common in New Testament times. It was the fruit of the wine. And according to Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it looks like on Thursday evening of the last week of his life, Jesus and his disciples, they entered Jerusalem in order to eat a Passover meal. 
to eat it in the sacred city. And that being said, they came to eat the Passover, but it was then that Jesus took that wafer and the wine of the communion service, and he instituted that himself to do in memory of him. He took that unleavened bread and the unfermented wine. Preacher, I don't know what I just say. What did we just read? Do you think Jesus would have disobeyed the commandments of the Passover? There's no way. But understand, we've got the unleavened bread, the unfermented wine of the Seder, And now Jesus takes that and he institutes the Lord's table. Leviticus 10.9 Do not drink wine, nor strong drink, thou nor thy sons with thee, when you go into the tabernacle of the congregation, lest you die. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations. Now, we mentioned this a couple of weeks ago. God is speaking to the priest. He said, look, don't you even think about drinking before you go to the tabernacle. Don't do it. Don't you dare do it. Especially my priests. Hebrews 3.1 Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of our heavenly calling, of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle, and notice this, the high priest of our profession, Jesus Christ. Now remember, in the Old Testament, fermented drink was never to be used in the house of God. In the Old Testament, the priests were not allowed (coughs) to draw near to God in worship while drinking intoxicating beverages. And the Bible says that Jesus Christ is God's high priest of the New Covenant. For our sake. And if God wouldn't allow the high priest to drink in their service, do you think Jesus did? I doubt it. Now, by the way, most of us live our lives trying to condone what we want to do. No matter what it is, you'll find a way to do it. You'll find a verse. But I think I've blown some of these out of the water today. Amen. Let's talk about symbolism. The importance of symbolism. First Peter chapter 1. Ooh, verse 18 and 19. Give me a minute, please. Give me two. For as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things, silver and gold, from your bank conversation, your lifestyle, received by the tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as a lamb without blemish, And without spot. We believe the Bible teaches that the bread we ate this morning, the cup, represented the body of Christ. It's not literally the body, it represents his symbol of his body. Symbol of his blood. The value of a symbol, hear me well, the value of a symbol 
is determined by its capacity to conceptualize a spiritual reality. Are you with me? The bread was unleavened. Because that bread represented the body of Christ. Did the body of Christ have sin? No. That's why the bread had to be without leaven. And just as the bread represented the pure body of Christ, it had to be unleavened, it had to be uncorrupted, without fermentation, the fruit of the vine representing the blood of Jesus Christ would have been represented by a juice without being fermented. It can't work any other way. It simply doesn't make logical, theological sense. If one had to be uncontaminated, so did the other. There's no way Jesus drank fermented wine at the Passover meal. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 6 through 8. Your glowing is not good. No, you're not but a little leaven. Leaven's the whole lump. Purge out, therefore, the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as ye are unleavened, for even Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So Paul warns us, Put away all spiritual yeast. The permitting agent, the malice of wickedness. Why? Because Jesus Christ is our Passover. So I want to leave with this thought this morning. It would be totally inconsistent with the goal of the spiritual requirement of the Lord's Supper To use something which was a symbol of evil, something made with leaven or yeast. So don't you tell me I can drink wine, intoxicating wine, because Jesus drank intoxicating wine at the Lord's Supper. I say, no, he did not. But here's my final question. Why would you want to take a chance? Why not do as Daniel did? Draw a line in the sand. And say, I'll not be defiled with the king's wine or his food. I want to live a life that glorifies God. Let's stand together. By the way, I don't want to give the wrong impression here this morning, folks. The Christian life is not what you do or don't, it's who you know. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior... You can mark all those things off your lips that you don't do, and it won't matter a bit. It's only through the blood of Jesus Christ you could ever be saved. It's only through the blood of Christ you could ever make heaven your home. And the good news is Jesus invites all to come to him, and you can be saved today. And that's the most important thing, to know him as your Savior. And I would beg with you today, don't turn him away. You don't have to go to heaven and bring him down or go to hell or bring him up. He's here right now. The word we preach, the gospel of Jesus Christ, he died for your sins. Father, I pray this morning, Lord, we'll let you speak to our hearts. 
I pray for all the Christians here today, God. I pray that our lives are exemplifying you in everything we do. I pray for those that are listening online that may be lost today, Lord, that need Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord, they allow you to speak to their heart. God, draw them to you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Brother Rick, whenever you're ready, we'll sing a verse or so of invitation. If you need to pray, we invite you to come and do that. If you're not saved this morning, don't.